the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my buds, Mike and Brian. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? <sighs> well, question: What's the what's yeah. your what, what is the new litmus test for fine? I need to know that. No, we're, I'm fine. I'm fine. I think is I, your clothing actually on fire? Yeah. If not, you're fine. Are you constantly screaming into the void? Well, yes. Anything yes, above that? Well, then that's baseline. Anything above that is considered good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. All joking aside. There is something that we at Geek at Arms want to address with all of our listeners. When we look back on this year, no one will ever say that 2020 was easy. We started off with half of Australia on fire. Then there were floods and earthquakes all over the globe. COVID-19 brought the world to a halt. And now the brutal death of George Floyd has sparked a national protest against racial prejudice and injustice. Unfortunately, many times the protests have turned to something far worse, and there has been further police violence, rioting, looting, and even more needless death. So much has happened in so short a time, I feel like many of us are beginning to experience crisis fatigue. Matthew Flinders coined this phrase, which he describes as a very natural human response. The whole nature of crisis is that they're new and shocking, and inevitably, as soon as you've thought about and lived with the crisis for a while, it becomes the new normal. But with our current media amplifying everything and 24-7 social media, every molehill has become a mountain. And we're beginning to feel the weight of them all at the same time. And this is becoming a serious mental and spiritual danger. So what do we do? First off, listeners, I want to encourage you to become educated. Read all that you can of the current situation. From the moment of George Floyd's death to the protests, the riots, how the police have responded positively and negatively, and how people are gathering in every state of the country, don't take any one source's word for it. Dig deep. Knowledge is and always has been power. Second, pray. In fact, do this as part of step one. Do it as step two, and do it while you're doing everything else at this time. Pray for strength, wisdom, healing, and especially change. Next, think about how you can work an effective change, whether it's reaching out to someone who is suffering at this time, or even going out and protesting yourself. If you feel the pull to protest then please do so as safely and smartly as you can. Remember, we are still dealing with the realities of COVID-19 and take the necessary precautions. Across the nation, we're seeing examples of the right and wrong way of protesting. And I want to share with you all Romans chapter 12, 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. 
I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our nation is standing at a crossroads. Change is coming, and we can make that change for the better. So right now, together, let's learn. Let's pray, and let's work for that better world. Yeah, uh, thanks, James. I, I realize it's, it's tough for three middle-aged white guys who have, you know, let's be honest, we've largely benefited from the systemic racism in this country um, to even talk about this honestly and uh, helpfully. But I, I thought I'd, I'd tell you a little bit. Um, as you know, I live actually in Hollywood, really close to to where some of the protesting has been has been happening. Um, and last Tuesday, it got really uncomfortably real for me. Not because I was I was out there protesting myself, um, but because it was literally a block away from my apartment. Uh, the National Guard was deployed less than a mile away from my home. Um, and I'm told I haven't uh, I haven't gone through the steps to verify it, but I'm told that uh, there were some tear gas and rubber bullets fired at protesters at uh, Hollywood and Vine, which is about two miles away. So, uh, honestly, I've never been this close to national international news before. Um, it's always been something remote, something that's happening somewhere else to people that I don't know. But this is in my neighborhood. This is this is happening really close to me. And so I've been having to, to look hard at myself. Um, I think I shared a few episodes ago about uh, being stopped on the sidewalk and somebody asking me, hey, are you a racist? And having to look at myself and say, you know what? I, I think I am a little bit. I mean, I'm not crossing the street to avoid passing a black guy, but I have a an involuntary response to people based on the way they're dressed and sometimes on the color of their skin. Um, and all of this just heightens, um, heightens my awareness of, of myself and my attitudes. Um, and I think anybody who's being honest, anybody who's, who's really thinking about this is going to have either one of two responses. They're going to say, Hey, that's not me. And I think that if that's your response if you're a white person saying, hey, that's not me, I think you need to stop and think about it again because I really think it's it's all of us to some degree. Or you're stopping and you're you're realizing that this paints a bad portrait of you yourself and you have to deal with that. Some people deal with that badly. Some people realize that they're racist and they don't want to change themselves and so they react in an uncivilized fashion. Uh, to put it very mildly, and others, I hope, I hope the bulk of us are experiencing what I'm experiencing and are saying this really is something that I needed to change about myself to find a way to help others change about themselves. Um, but ultimately, it's not our place to be agitating for the change so much as it's our place to be getting out of the way and letting it. I don't know. <laughs> it's one of the. It's it's so hard to to disentangle all of it because frankly we are the beneficiaries of privilege and those who have power 
it is up to them to cede that power. But then you're saying, okay, well now I'm the one in control. It's, it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. But I just, I think what I was going to say is that this isn't really what people are, are coming to us to listen to. Uh, they want to hear about, uh, what's, what's been, what we've been geeking out about lately. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think it's time to, to turn our attention to that unless Mike has more to add. I just have a quick thing, um, because we're here, um, and we're doing this. We're not, we're not the best spokespeople for this. Uh, we're not. Uh, and, uh, there are a lot of voices out there that have a better place in the spotlight than ours, but you're here. Mm -hmm. So, and we, we have this mic, um, so I, I did want to call some attention to to something that I think kind of fits into a transition here. I've, I've had to have the conversation with some of my friends who uh, one of them this week was saying on her Facebook, look, this idea of systemic racism is even entirely contradictory to the Wesleyan Arminian tradition. Um, it's completely contradictory to our idea of entire sanctification uh, and uh, and living a holy life, as in it, if Wesleyan Arminianism is, is true, systemic racism is not. Uh, and I kind of had to, we, we broke down over a few posts, politely uh, and civilly and with, with all love and respect, say, well, part of the Wesleyan Arminian tradition, which I am a minister of, and if there's anybody from, from the Calvinist tradition here whose ears are, are burning, I understand, I beg your patience for a moment. <laughs> and that uh, what it means is that just because we have been, if you do claim that you have been entirely sanctified, it does not mean that you are free from all of your finite restraints, your finite wisdom, your finite knowledge, your finite understanding. It just means living in, in a way that is compatible with the love of Christ as far as you understand it. And it means that we have a responsibility to learn and grow as Christians. Uh, whether or not you are a sanctified, holy, fill-in, whatever descriptor here, Christian, uh, it means that you still continue to grow in understanding and wisdom. And sometimes that understanding and that wisdom is listening to people that, that have had a different experience than you and how your words may hurt them or how your actions, unintentional as they may be, have been hurtful. And you have the ability to learn and to grow and so this is an opportunity to learn, to grow, and not just seek your, your own affirmation that you are a good person, but you have the opportunity to learn, how can I, how can I be better? Mm -hmm. And I think that is, that is our responsibility. How can I be better? Man, if that's not a mm -hmm. great idea to keep in our heads constantly in this time. How can I be better? And I may be screwing up right now, but, you know, I will try to be better you know, as I, as I learn and, and grow more. And I mean, I mean that seriously. I don't mean that as funny. I mean, it, maybe it is funny, but well, it's honest. It's serious. Yeah. I, I chuckle because I know I'm screwing up right now and I can point to the places in my life that I can a hundred percent identify, Hey, that's sinful. I need to cut that out. Uh, so sanctification is both an event and a process. I think, of course, I'm no theologian, so I mm -hmm. may be. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I love you both. Listeners, we love all of you. We want to thank you all for listening to us as we try and address and stumble our way through, uh, through this situation as best we can. Anything we say is too little. It is. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
Thank you for bearing with us. Thank you for listening to us throughout all this time. We appreciate you more than you know. And we ask, as you pray for this situation, keep us in your prayers as well. And we will do the same for you. Yep. All right, gentlemen. Well. What else has been going on in your lives? (laughs) What else has been going on? (laughs) Well, I say, let's head to Geek Out. Who would like to go first? I think I have been volunteered for that uh, privilege. Take it away, my friend. So I think I mentioned uh, last time, maybe the time before that, that I was game mastering Tales from the Loop. And I have been very happy that James has now joined my group. And I have been very happy to play in it. It has been a lot of fun. It's been so long since uh, we've had the opportunity to do this regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, COVID is is helping this, helping this to happen and hasn't uh, managed to get going in the past. We're about halfway through the published the campaign published in the back of the book, um, and <clears throat> for the most part, everybody is uh, kind of following the breadcrumbs the way I expect. There's occasional uh, throwing me for a loop to pun a little bit, <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm really having a lot of fun, and I hope that uh, hope that we can keep it going for quite quite some time. Uh, the plan is actually we've been recording. Um, and we'd like to to release those recordings syndicated through this channel. Uh, so maybe in the near future, a couple of months, you might start hearing those. I'm going to keep my geek out time a little bit short today uh, with only one more item. As you know, I've been continuing my trek through watching the entire MCU again, including the television shows. And I had got to Runaways. How is, is that? Uh, Hulu. It's good. Why doesn't anybody talk about this show? I have heard nothing about it. I I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know it was on Hulu, <laughs> and I knew it existed, and I know... I'll let you go on, because all I know is that there's a raptor. Right, that was pretty much all I knew about it uh, going in, was there's a really smart kid, and there's a psychic dinosaur. Uh, I think I picked that up flipping through a comic at the, at the comic book store once. Uh, the premise is uh, these... Five or six, I'd have to stop and count. Anyway, a handful of high schoolers discover that their parents are supervillains. And in response, they run away from home. They find themselves in an abandoned mansion, which they designate as their their headquarters. And they fight against their parents' nefarious plots. And it uh, it was picked up as a TV show on Hulu, which the show plays with the... Uh, the concept a little bit. They changed the parents from being, you know, outright supervillains to being manipulated and uh, not entirely evil so that it introduces a little bit more CW-style teen angst. Oh, should we really try and get our parents thrown away, th- uh, put away or even kill them? Uh, or should we try and redeem them somehow? And I've, I've really been... they say hail Hydra, that, that'll, that'll finch it for me. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, there are some, as yet, uh, unexplained connections to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, there's one particular plot element from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that pops up, and they never explain how it got there, and you're like, wait a minute, that's not supposed to be here. I won't give any spoilers about what it but is. Does, is Agent Coulson just walking into a room, looking at his smartphone, looking up and seeing who everyone is, goes, oh, sorry, sorry, I'm in the wrong room, pardon me, <laughs> and just backs out meekly? No, it wasn't uh, a cast hand. member. His his hand thing style just crawls across the uh, the floor. <laughs> right. 
No, it's it's not a character. Uh, it's it's a uh, an object that shows up, and is a pretty big part of the show. And there's a uh, crossover with Cloak and Dagger, another Marvel show that not very many people are aware of, which is on well, what's that? Uh, Freeform, a network that nobody's ever heard of. You know, it's funny that Marvel's got their movies locked down. I mean, they're killing it in the box office, but their TV shows are all over the place. Mm -hmm. DC, on the other hand, for the most part, all of their movies, except the ones that start with the letter W, are (laughs) kind of of a red-hot mess. But their TV shows and their abilities to effectively cross over with each other are top-notch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a, a strangeness for sure. Oh, we need to get these two together. No, no, we do not. <laughs> Never mind. That was, should not have been said. <laughs> no, because then the next Marvel movie will start. We'll see it's in a gray tone and be like, no, no, they made it worse. No, <laughs> you went the wrong direction. <laughs> now Marvel's producing DC TV shows and DC's producing Marvel movies. Oh, no. <laughs> what, what is it to, to undo? Control what? Control Z, Control Control Z, Z, yes, Control Z. (laughs) Undo it, undo it. Uh, You made a bear. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, undo it, undo it. Anyway, uh, yeah, so Cloak and Dagger is on Freeform, and it crossed over with characters into uh, Runaways. (laughs) Uh, But other than that, it seems to be kind of compartmentalized. It's not attached to the larger Marvel Universe very much. Um, there's no sign of the snap yet. Don't know if that will figure into the show in later seasons or not. Uh, it certainly won't for Cloak and Dagger. That one's been canceled. Uh. Anyway, so that's what I've been geeking out to, at least the major points. Who's next? I will go next. Upon Mike's recommendation, if you remember from last episode, I had asked him about some games, specifically board games, that we could play with my daughter. And upon his recommendation, we bought Dragonwood and Unexploded Cows. My daughter has subsequently (laughs) fallen in love with both of them and is asking to play at least one of them, if not both of them, just about every other night. Nice. And the three of us have really had a ball playing them. So, Mike, thank you for the recommendations. It has been great. You're welcome. And uh, listeners, if you have any kids that are like around the age of seven and eight and you're looking to... uh, start a board game with them highly recommend dragonwood unexploded cows you can find them both for pretty inexpensive on amazon great fun your kids will have fun you will have fun playing it as well and let's see uh, speaking of games it's been interesting because i've had more rpg time in the last couple of months mm-hmm. than i've had in the past six years yeah um i've been on with brian I've done two sessions of his Tales from the Loop campaign, which has been a game system I have wanted to play in since it was first announced. And I've had a really great time doing it. The other gentlemen who I play with, I feel like we've meshed really well. I've had a lot of fun playing with them. We've got a good party. And it's it's just been fun. Just pure fun. I had a blast playing with both of you gentlemen and the guys on City on the Hill in that Star Wars campaign, which I think Mike is going to bring up more of later. I'll let him do that. And uh, I'm hoping for even more in the future. I can't wait for our next session for Tales of the Loop. I hope we get a continuation of the Star Wars game. And yeah, Uh, I also have had a chance to do some more leatherworking. I think in the 
last episode, I talked about how I was working on a pair of belts, uh, one for my daughter and one for a friend for use at SCA events. Well, another project that I've been working on for an indeterminate number of years, and the reason it's an indeterminate number of years is because I refuse to tell you. (laughs) Along with the belts, I have also completed my archery bracer. Yay! Uh, And I have a picture of that. I am actually going to send both of you right now, and I will also post at the Geek and Arms Facebook page when this airs. And for those of you who are listening without access to the internet, otherwise right now, um, I will describe it to you in vivid detail from top to bottom. No, but it's beautiful. (laughs) You'll notice the sparkles. I just attached the LED lights onto it. (laughs) I'm wondering, is that, is that look, that's a creative anachronism. Um, Is that thing actually burn hot or does that, does that laser work? (laughs) What, the Fortis and Fide? No, I was kidding about okay. the laser. <laughs> I had to. Gotcha. Um, you said sparkles. I decided to go weird with it. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. I couldn't keep it's up. It's not there. a laser. It's just a little light bulb that blinks. Yeah. <laughs> and don't look at it. Don't don't look directly. Oh oh don't oh oh they're on fire. His eyes are on fire. Don't look at it, Marion. Keep your eyes shut. <laughs> All right. So uh, as you can see from the picture, it's more of a modern style of bracer. I took a class at Tandy Leather. You know, pay money. You get to cut it out of leather, and then you can do more work on it. But the tooling is based on uh, period examples, especially the upper half is based on surviving pieces of uh, bracers from the Mary Rose, and uh, as is uh, putting a Latin uh, phrase or a motto on there. And I put on Fortis in Fide, which is Latin for strong in faith. The repeating diamond pattern below it. I based on the bracer that Russell Crowe wore in the Ridley Scott Robin Hood movie from 2010. (laughs) Now, some people give that movie grief, but I really enjoyed it, and it inspired me to start getting back into archery. And the brass buckles that I just recently put on are based on period ones that I ordered from a website called armorandcastings.com. And great place to get some belt gear and other brass medieval reproductions. And finally, for the last part of my geek out... um, my wonderful wife just recently had a birthday. Throughout everything that has happened, especially with the quarantine and more, she's been a rock. She has been absolutely incredible. And as a very small token of affection, I let her know how much I love her, how much I appreciate what she's done, so she can get just a little bit more enjoyment herself, I bought her a Nintendo Switch Lite. Yay! <laughs> I've already actually talked to her about game recommendations. (laughs) You were the first person that I recommended her to about games because I knew that you guys had a Switch. I almost bought Animal Crossing for her because of how much you and Kaja have talked it up and how much Joy has kind of gone back and forth about it. I could see the interest was in her eyes, but I didn't know how much, so I held off. I bought her the Switch. I bought her a memory card. And uh, I went ahead and gave it to her a little bit early because we were actually going to be traveling over her birthday weekend. So that way she had time to get a game and we could play it while we traveled. And she got Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Breath of the Wild. Solid choice. And from what little bit I've seen of that game, like looking over her shoulder, that looks beautiful. Oh, dude, don't watch over her shoulder. Ask her to dock it. And watch it on the big screen. It is like there is serious 
spectator value to watching that beautiful, beautiful game. I didn't know that you could do that with a Switch Lite. Might just have to try that. Oh, with the Switch Lite. Yeah. That I do not know. Okay. So that will wrap it up for my geek out. Mike, on to you. All right. We've been doing not as much board gaming lately. Uh, for some reason, that's just something that kind of fell off. I was going to say it kind of fell off our radar, but uh, my wife wound up doing some uh, some experiments with some board games on her phone, and she picked up this app, and she was always playing it, and I wasn't paying attention to it, like, at all, until suddenly a box arrives at the door, and she opens it up and waves <laughs> a game in my face and says, okay, I've been playing this on my phone, and we're playing it. And it is Castles of Mad King Ludwig. The... Idea of the game is based on the historical person of Ludwig II in Bavaria, and this is a king who spent all of his personal wealth commissioning architectural works of wonder in his castles that he built. He also ran himself completely dry, like he made himself broke commissioning these things, and that was one of the things that made his uh, <laughs> that made his surrounding government declare him insane and got him unseated from the throne so the fact that he would he would just withdraw from society and just just commission the arts because i mean what else is a bad ruler other than you know withdrawing and, and funding the art he did not drain the country's coffers he only made himself broke so just want to make that clear the game <laughs> takes that same idea is that you have a certain amount of money and you're trying to pull in money and spend uh, spend whatever you can on building a castle. And the castle is built by uh, basically just tile placement. And so each tile is a room of the castle and you can purchase hallways and you can purchase work rooms and food rooms and entertainment rooms. So when I think and, tile placement, the first place my mind goes is games like Carcassonne. Is it similar to that? Um, great question. And the answer is no, because in Carcassonne, you lay things out on a grid. This game has no grid. In Carcassonne, you have standard sized pieces. This game has no standardized sized pieces. Ten different shapes and sizes. And so when you start putting aligning these rooms together, what you're trying to do is line up doorways or sometimes not line up the doorways. <laughs> so you could have rooms that are supposed to lead out into a door that's supposed to lead out to another room, except it leads out of the castle or into a brick wall or whatever. I mean, you do have to, you do have to line up, connect new rooms only by doorways, but things can go kind of anywhere. And so that's, that's why it's called the, the castles of Mad King Ludwig. These things can sprawl in any which direction and have a castle that makes logically no sense as you're looking at it, but it can sprawl all over your play space. And that kind of freedom really is kind of a, a fun aspect of the game. And so is sort of the tactile manipulation of the heavy cardboard and trying to lay out this crazy, crazy castle. I see what you mean. I'm on Amazon right now looking at the game, and I've, my first thought was, ooh, I'd buy this for the box art alone. <laughs> Isn't he the one who built uh, Neuschwanstein? I probably mispronounced that very badly. Beautiful, picturesque castle. I'm going to do, I'm going to do something here. Um, I'm going to look it up later, but I'm going to do two sound bites. One, 
Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, it was. Um, and <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think he was. And uh, we'll do the research later, or James will leave us in, and it doesn't matter. Well, good, yeah, good idea. Better Walter Cronkite that situation and record like five different responses. We'll get the right one in post. <laughs> or just leave it in and let the audience know what a mess we can be. No. Um, <laughs> so we've never done that before. Never done that before. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, that's the real answer. But I'll look it up later. The scoring mechanic of this game is actually pretty—it's pretty cool. It it borrows from a couple of different mechanics that you that you may have seen, like in Ex Libris. There's a public goal, like here are the books you're trying to get, while you have a secret goal of collect all of these books. It works kind of like that here too, where or also like in Ticket to Ride, you're trying to connect these railways, but you have these secret missions. So if you're trying to get from point A to point B and point B to point C, you have a private scoring mechanic where you're trying to either have as many open doorways as you can or as many hallways as possible or more money than anybody else. And you get scored based on those, as well as getting scored based on the tiles that you're placing on the board. There's also a public scoring where everybody is trying to get either the most rooms of this size or the most L shapes or the most money. And these things change every time. So because of the, the numerous types of goals there are, each game plays very different from the next. So it's mid to lightweight and it's, uh, it's got enough moving parts to make it interesting and without really being overwhelming for you know a tired mind after a long day's work. It's already added to my wish list. <laughs> awesome. And uh, also a thing that we've been doing, which if you listen to City on a Hill, you're probably already aware as of the recording of this episode, the guest episode where we play Star Wars is listed on their website. And that's amazing. That's exciting. And I had a whole lot of fun being with you guys. I think it was the first time that we've actually been at the same table in something like 12 to 15 years. Yes. Yep. Ever since that uh, Sidewinder recoiled game. That was a heck of a day. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ryan was extraordinarily gracious and generous and offered to turn the GM position over to me. And I'm, I, first of all, I was really grateful for the experience because this is his baby. This is his podcast. And we've mm -hmm. not gamed. So it was a wonderfully gracious uh, act of trust. And uh, I had a lot of fun mm -hmm. with the crew that we brought together. I did as well. And I have to give a bit of word fame. Mike, you did a great job of GMing. And you wrote a really fun campaign. Thank you. I admittedly was a little bit concerned about how it was going to work. Because I, I originally wrote that as a four-hour adventure. And we've got to fit it into two hours. And I'm like, uh, okay, I got to trim out mechanics over here. I got to trim out mechanics over there. And what I didn't say at the time, uh, you know how those stormtroopers just wouldn't go down? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, when I was trying to make some changes in in Roll Twenty, I accidentally gave them an additional die of strength. Ah, <laughs> that would explain it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and I'm like. Come on, guys, we're on a timeline. Why won't you just die? But anyway. <laughs> I think we even mentioned that in game. Like, we thought these were stormtroopers, but apparently they're elite death commandos. What's funny is, I, you know, I didn't want to drop it in at the time, 
But I actually did that once in a game when somebody was, I mean, they were a Jedi. They were pretty well up in, in their stats. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to jump onto that hover sled full of stormtroopers and we're going to go chop Saki. And so he jumps into it and he, he makes his roll and it's an astoundingly high roll and he rolls a one on his wild die. And <laughs> if you listen to the show, if you run a, if you roll a one on one particular die in your dice pool, it's, it's not a critical failure, but it adds, it, the GM has the opportunity to add a complication. And so the complication that I put in was, oh, yeah, uh, a few of these stormtroopers are actually royal guards that are in the rotation to keep them battle hardened. And so all of a sudden his, we're going to go chop Saki is, oh, my gosh, this is a fight. <laughs> so <laughs> that was evil. And I would never, ever, ever do that to you, nice folk. No, no, of course not. <laughs> oh, the pack well, of I... rancors you threw our way really surprised me. That filled my heart with such glee. I was, I was really sad that Ryan's character died, but you know, on with the show. On with no, the show. <laughs> that did not happen. Um, but if you want to listen to the show, it was, uh, it was a, an adventure that takes place literally thirty seconds after the Battle of Scarif and from the events of Rogue One, and we have our intrepid players stranded on the planet Scarif and trying to make their escape. And part one has been released, and we're waiting for part two to come out. And I'll say this. I don't want to spoil it, but I have to say that there was some really wonderful moments of role play, especially in part two, when we had some of the players just making up what the scenery was. So it's one of the things I like to do in my style is say, okay, I'm not just the narrator. I am part narrator, and I'm here to help things along, but you can create the scene. You have that freedom and that power as a player so long as it fits to make up the scene. And we had one person say, uh, yeah, uh, isn't that that thing right over there? And then we had the rest of the crew kind of jumping in with it. And I don't want to spoil it, but Justin and Brian, just the two of you improving off of each other, it seen into existence was just brilliant for me as a GM to watch. It was a lot of fun to do, too. Well, gentlemen, if that will wrap up our geek outs before we head into our discussion in the next movie of our film club, I have a pop quiz. Pop quiz, pop quiz. (laughs) I didn't study. (laughs) Well, often when people are stressed, and I think our current climate counts for that, they reach for comfort foods. Besides snacks and meals, comfort can come from a variety of sources. I want to ask you, what are some geeky comfort foods, I say foods in quotation, or (laughs) geeky sources of comfort that you've reached for in these trying times? Myself, I've been rewatching episodes of one of my favorite TV shows of all time, MASH. Mm. If you want seriousness, if you want comedy, levity, introspection, you're going to get it all from that show. I mean, there's a reason it went on for like 11 seasons and the much longer than the war actually lasted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I remember being a kid and I'm like, man, the Korean War, why don't we know more about this? This war lasted forever. And then I found out it was only three years? <laughs> Wait, how many winter episodes were there? <laughs> well, you see what it was is they, they actually did it like the television show twenty four. So for every minute of screen time, it's actually a minute of real time of the ah, Korean War. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> then that all evens out. Uh, and all the seasons are on Hulu. 
So since they're just half-hour episodes, I've just been kind of shotgunning them a few at a time. Like I said, it's it's a comfort show. Yeah, MASH is one of those amazing experiences that it can pirouette between making you cry and making you laugh just so effortlessly mm-hmm. and seamlessly. It's yeah. it's amazing. Oftentimes with the same character in the same scene. Mm-hmm. So in addition to that, I have been rereading the graphic novels of the webcomic Girl Genius. It's always been great fun to delve back into the world of Agatha Heterodyne and is it a steampunk? Yes, it is. But it's also more of a kind of a gaslight fantasy world. It's always great fun. Every time I read it, I find another aspect of it I didn't catch before. And it's a little bit of escapism. Absolutely. But right now, there's nothing wrong with that. And if you have never read these before, you can read the entire th- series for free at Girl Genius. I think it's girlgenius.com. I also encourage you to support the artist, Phil Foglio, and his wife by some of the graphic novels. Anytime they want to print a new one, they do a Kickstarter for it. And I think I've done the Kickstarter for like the past six or seven graphic novels because I just enjoy having them on hand and reading them and supporting this great artist. So check them out. And they're losing a lot of income right now because they can't go to conventions. So buy some merch, too. Buy some merch. Absolutely. Mm. Those are my comfort foods. What about you, gentlemen? I am watching so many cartoons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Between Rebels and Gargoyles and She-Ra and Scooby-Doo. Avatar now is on Netflix. I'm really enjoying that. And it seems like there are two or three others. I just so many cartoons. I should note, we recently, since uh, Avatar did come back to Netflix, I showed it to my daughter. And over the course of two weeks, she watched all three seasons. <laughs> it, it is her favorite show now. It is so good. Mm-hmm. And then people have been telling me to watch it for ages, and it just I haven't had the opportunity. So I'm so glad that it finally showed up someplace that I was subscribed to. Cool. Yeah. How, how was your experience with that so far? Oh, I love it. It's If I had any complaints at all, it would be that the animation is really steppy. I mean, they're animating on like 12s or something sometimes. Wow. <laughs> it's, but I mean, it they've got a budget that they have to meet. It's Nickelodeon, so there's not a huge amount of money there. So I, I perfectly understand why it's the way it is. It would be really cool if at some point somebody went in and did some of those in-betweens, but I don't anticipate that's probably going to happen. Uh, but the the characters, I love them all. I have been compared to Uncle Iroh enough times that I knew I had to eventually watch the show. That uh, is high praise. Yeah. That is yeah, high I, praise. I'm, I'm very pleased with, uh, with the comparison now that I've actually seen him. During the first season, when he was just kind of a stick in the mud, doing nothing but drinking tea, were your thoughts, oh, you guys were jerks. No, no, he was. That's me right there. No, I don't want to do that. I just like to drink some tea and play pie show, please. See, what's funny is my brother just started watching Avatar, and he he texted me and he said, "Please tell me that I, I just need to know right uh, right off the bat is are they doing the thing where all the Fire Nation is bad?" And I'm like, <laughs> "No, that's a fair question." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, most of them, when they're on foreign soil, are willing to tow the party line, especially when they're the ones that are sent there on a mission. 
Um, but I said, Iroh is the first one to really show his colors. And, you know, you do meet people from the Fire Nation that are good. Others are just kind of caught up in their own nationalistic perspective that, okay, nope, beep boop, this is what we're doing. Take a look at their education system. Oh, by the way, <laughs> uh, Brian, you get to see their mm-hmm. education system. Oh, really? I thought that was a oh, yeah. tongue-in-cheek. No, <laughs> it is not. Interesting. Just yeah. out of curiosity, where are you at right now in Avatar? Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle of season two. Okay. Oh, has Toph shown up yet? Yes. I think Yay. I'm on the third or fourth episode since she showed up. Excellent. Yeah, it, it just keeps getting better. <laughs> what about you, so Mike? Mike? Well, me? Okay, well, sure. Um, well, we had... We'd already just watched Avatar The Last Airbender on DVD just before it got released on Netflix. So what we've been doing instead is watching Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix. (laughs) And uh, and we did finish it on Netflix just recently. And I'm pretty sure we're going to switch to Avatar The Last Airbender on on Netflix um, season one. So there's, yeah, there's been a lot of that. (laughs) Because it's just still solid. I don't care. And there's also kind of our, our evening non-cartoon watching. Our our lighthearted comfort food thing has been Gallivant. And it's, oh, I love Gallivant so much. <laughs> it is so self-aware and so goofy and so, and so extra and so everything. So <laughs> there have been so many parts of that show which just made me laugh and some that made me groan. Because it does get groan worthy at times. But the one that just about had me falling out of my seat was when Weird Al Yankovic guest starred as the singing monks, like the monks of perpetual rhythm or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And that whole song that he did with the other monks, I'm I'm falling. I'm, I'm dying in my chair laughing. See, the one that gets me every time is when... Uh, there's two of them that get me every time is when Sid is trying to lead a revolution. And so he's, he's in song like parodying Les Miserables in terms of how they're going to rise up and how they're going to fight and how the, the chorus rings out with tomorrow we'll regret it, but today we rise. And it starts talking about how they're going to be horribly beaten and mangled and bloody and disfigured and, and maimed. And as they're as they're marching up, more and more people are dropping out of the revolution as the song gets more and more descriptive. And so he gets there, and he's standing alone against the guards. And I'm like, oh, that's grand. That's great. That, and when they're singing the song about how they're going to sneak up on <gasps> on the king, yes, and, and kill him in his sleep. We're off on a but secret they, mission. <laughs> We're off on a secret plot. <laughs> and so they they're drinking through the whole thing so they're losing focus and being louder to, while they're sneaking and it just there's a scene where the song stops and they actually like tiptoeing behind some guards you can hear crickets and in I the background lose, <laughs> i lose it every time so oh i i just remembered the monks they're called the order of our father of perpetual refrain oh that's it <laughs> Perpetual refrain. Yes. Have you watched season two yet? Oh, like how many times have I watched season two is the question. So as much as I've loved season one, I've, I have not made my way to season two yet. I feel like a bad fan. Oh my gosh. I just the thing I is keep they, forgetting about it. They flip the entire dynamic. And also like there is the, like episode one or episode two 
has like one of the best songs in season two. There's like only one song in season two that I'm like, eh, I don't, I, I'm not into this. But they they flip the dynamic, uh, and it turns it turns into a different dynamic between between Gallivant and Richard. Like they wind up going on a contemptuous buddy mission, and then it actually turns into kind of a buddy mission. Like the the characters change and they grow, and it's grand. All right. Before the next episode's geek out, I will have made my way through Galavan season two. Yay! Well, guys, I think we should probably head to the film club. Let's shall. Yes. So uh, for the next movie in our film club, listeners, uh, we're taking a look at another movie in the superhero genre that is not a part of DC and Marvel. And this time we're looking at 1991's Disney's The Rocketeer. I'll be honest, I watched this one in the last few days, and first off, I forgot how much fun it was. Me too. Actually, no, I'd never seen it before, so I probably need to insert myself. So where do we want to start? Well, as usual, uh, why did we pick this particular film? I know it was one of the first ones that you mentioned, James, uh, Mm -hmm. mostly because you had such good memories of it. The reason why we picked this film... Is is because James really, 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 really wanted us to. I mean, I like <laughs> Let me take you down the short rabbit hole to make a short story even longer. We were discussing what genre films we were looking at, and one of them that got brought up was noir films. And it led me to admit that I hadn't really seen many noir films. And I brought up another Disney film, another early comic book adaptation, uh, Dick Tracy, asking, would this be considered a noir film? And that got me reminiscent of Dick Tracy, and that led me to, which I think Dick Tracy came out in like 1989, and then uh, a couple of years after that, they released The Rocketeer. And I was like, oh man, Dick Tracy was good. Oh man, The Rocketeer was even better. Oh, we should watch The Rocketeer. And (laughs) here we are. (laughs) As a filmmaking choice, this was an interesting thing to try to to make, because this, this is before they were really doing superhero films as a genre. I mean, we we had Batman, and that was a phenomenal success at the box office. But then what was the next big superhero hit after that? X-Men? Spider-Man? I mean, was there something in the middle there? Yes. I mean, a lot of other stuff got made. but Yeah, Spider-Man was probably the, the first one where people realized, oh, hey, now the technology is good enough that we can do Spider-Man movies yeah. or do superhero movies well. We had things like The Spirit was in 87, of course, there was the, the Ninja Turtles all through there. But yeah, I guess it, Judge Dredd was 95, so that was four years later. When did the first Blade come out? Blade? That was when I was in college, I'm pretty sure. You know what? This list is not uh, complete because it doesn't even have Blade. Blade was 98. Uh, okay. So yeah, there wasn't so, an industry of superhero movies at the time, really. And the, the creator really thought that this was that this was an idea that was ripe for a movie. And when he created it, he really wanted to sell the movie right. But it it was one of those things that just because you sell the rights doesn't mean it's going to get made. And this spent, mm-hmm. this movie spent a long time trying to get made. So there were rights and rewrites and first directors and second directors and changeovers and rights go back. And then Disney didn't even know who they would be distributing it under. Was it going to be a Disney title, or was it going to be one of the other studios that they owned if it had a more more adult flair? Right. I guess that uh, 
time in in pre-production explains some of the the missing uh, scenes that we we sensed, but they weren't really. It didn't feel like they were on the cutting room floor. It felt like there's a spot here for plot that didn't get developed. Yeah, uh, that yeah, would explain that. That's one of the reasons why I started looking into what was the development like. Because I'm like, ooh, I really want to see the Jenny show. Like, ooh, I really oh, yeah. want to <laughs> see this show. Ooh, I really want to see that show. And I didn't get to see those shows. They actually also had it planned that this could be the first of three Rocketeer movies. And this one only made millions of dollars at the box office. And we just can't have that. <laughs> I mean, it made... Right. It, it made like eleven million. Like it, it made its budget back, and then it made an additional eleven million. And with the conflicts that there were between the producers and the directors and the higher ups, it was like it, people were saying, "Yep, we did it. That's fine. We're happy." It was more than eleven million dollars worth of stress. <laughs> but it did. It did do one thing for for Joe Johnston, and that is like if you're if you're gonna say you know what, we need a superhero who is willing to do so in like a 19, 1940s, 30s-ish World War II style. And, and yeah, who, who on earth are we going to have direct a superhero fighting Nazis in the 1930s and 1940s? <laughs> you know, Joe Johnston, there we go. He's our guy. And so he made <laughs> Captain America. So I know that I've kind of jumped around in our, yeah. uh, in our notes here. I am so sorry. But uh, one thing that I think that is interesting about this film is, is like Mystery Men, we have a superhero who has no powers. Like the, the only thing that he has is this gadget that he found. And an apparent natural skill at flying. Yeah. Uh, he at least is ostensibly near the top of his field as skill-wise as a pilot. Although, uh, whereas the Mystery Men, the best they could say is... The shoveler shovels very well. Uh, <laughs> he he says, "I could fly a shoebox if it had wings." So he's very confident in his his abilities. It's just the the machines that have been letting him down. Yeah, I I think that there is something that was that was innately interesting about this idea of I guess that you're every man or realistic person that doesn't have powers except for this piece of gear because there was. There was a scene that had some wonderful dramatic tension in it when they when he's just about ready to take the rocket pack and say, "Okay, we're going to give this back to the FBI. Uh, The feds can have it. We're done. And then the goons come into the diner. Well, Mm -hmm. he's there in a diner full of goons. And the only reason why he makes it out of that scene alive is because of his friends. Because he has no powers, and a rocket pack is doing you no good when you can't fly. Like, you, you can fly in a fancy restaurant, but you can't do that in a diner. Especially if the rocket pack's up in the attic. I know, right? <laughs> that was one of the things that I really liked about the movie, was that, that community around the airfield. Because they were clearly very, very tight-knit. They were looking out for each other, communicating non-verbally. And that was that was a, a high point in in the film for me was was watching that watching those people be friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even though they don't give you much backstory of the other characters, you can tell these were people that been through a lot together. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's alluded to that some of them may have been in the first world war together, but these are all people who have been around each other. They worked together for years, and 
and yeah, they they just in how they react to each other and talk to each other, it's easy to see the history. Yeah, I mean, there were some scenes, again, in the diner that did exactly that for you. They didn't tell you that they had history. They showed you that they had history. Yeah. When the guy said, have I ever told you the story of when I was? And the little girl's like, yes, you have. And then <laughs> the woman behind the counter looks at her sternly. Like, no, you haven't. And so, <laughs> I mean, there is history in just that little bit. And, and actually, the little girl didn't even say anything. We showed history with three people, and only one of them said anything. And speaking mm-hmm. of showing, not just the people, but also the setting as well. One thing that I really enjoyed, and I can remember loving this as a kid, is I loved the look and the feel of this old airfield and all of these biplanes of different ages and the pilots hanging around, the diner, the giant pug dog diner that, or bulldog <laughs> diner that they were all eating in. It felt so real to me. It was. That's the weird thing. My my daughter had said, like, what is up with that creepy dog? And I'm like, sweetheart, that was a thing. And I actually looked it up, and it was modeled after an actual diner with an actual bulldog sculpture as its facade. I mean, it's burnt down now, so it's not the same. It's not the same one. But they took enough notes of what was real that they could infuse it into this film to create the period, even if it looks a little weird to us, if you know something about that slice of Americana, it just creates the scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think there actually is still a restaurant that's that's got that kind of uh, weird sculpture facade on it somewhere nearby. I can't remember what it is, but it's a, yeah, it's like you drive by like, what in the heck is that? See, I, I know they're <laughs> within a stone's throw of Hollywood or mm-hmm. Hollywoodland. At the, at yeah, Hollywood land. But do they say what part of California the airfield is at? Uh, no, I don't think they ever mentioned it. Okay. He did say at one point when they were testing the rocket, that must have woken up half the valley. So they must be north of the mountains. In I the didn't valley. know Silicon Valley was a thing then. <laughs> it's not Silicon Valley. That's San Francisco. Oh, oh, oh. oh San Fernando oh, oh. Valley. Yeah. Back then it was known as Graphite Valley. Totally different place. <laughs> <laughs> For those unfamiliar with Los Angeles geography, the valley is San Fernando Valley, which is uh, north of the Beverly Hills, squashed between the two mountain ranges in the northern part of Los Angeles. While we're talking about the feel and we're talking about the time, can we talk a little bit about the music? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because it was the high point of was, the movie for me, really. Right. Likewise. This was just a wonderful piece of work from James Horner. I mean, and he's often been accused of self-plagiarism. And yeah, you you can sometimes hear where some phrases sound like they have Horner's fingerprints all over it. But really, it was fantastic for this film. The opening really just had that that right all-American, old-timey, patriotic-ish feel and really, if the Boston Pops had taken from the beginning of this film and were playing it on the promenade for the 4th of July, it would feel entirely in place. It had me thinking that you could take the Rocketeer soundtrack, use it to replace the music for Captain America First Avenger, and it would fit pretty well. <laughs> I've actually just been listening to the soundtrack after I watched the film. Just think it's good. <laughs> 
And you can criticize James Horner all you like. At least he only plagiarizes his own work and not somebody else's. It's <laughs> true. Right. <laughs> Every time I hear uh, little bits of Holst come through in uh, Goldsmith's music, I'm like, ah, gosh, <laughs> could you disguise it a little better? But, I mean, James Horner's done some work that has that is really get stuck in your head for its own good. I mean, what has he done? He's done. He's been involved in Star Trek, Willow, uh, Titanic, uh, Braveheart. I mean, and, and those do have different feels except for a couple of phrases that are like, oh, yeah, that feels kind of familiar. But, no, he's he did he did a bang-up job with this film. As I said, probably the high point in this film for me was, was the soundtrack. Uh, other than the soundtrack, the rest of the film craft was, there wasn't a whole lot that was... Uh innovative or notable the visual effects were executed competently but they didn't invent anything for it mm-hmm. although I, I will say the wire work was very very good yeah by wire work i mean when the guy's hanging on wires and flying around it was, <laughs> as i was watching it again especially with the first time we get a look at the rocket pack when they turn it on and it goes blasting out of the office i'm thinking oh those early 90s effects <laughs> and let me tell you, watching them on a 4K TV does them no favors at all. <laughs> but See, what's yeah. funny? I but, didn't but find it jarring. Having since learned that a lot of those effects were actually stop motion has mm-hmm. made me appreciate them a lot more. They didn't invent anything new, but the stop motion, the optical effects that they did use, and the motion control, they used them so well that I'm like, well done. You did a great job. Now, the only it was, time it really jumped out at me is when he was flying at his buddy who was in the plane in the sky, and the optical compositing there was like the contrast just seemed like it was was off. But yeah. again, that's what you get with the optical compositing of that age. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult to do that kind of compositing against a bright sky and not have the dark edges show up. That was the problem in uh, Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and they solved that by not printing things at their full opacity. So... Right. <laughs> the the one that jumped out at me, and it I don't think it was even really a visual effects problem. It was a cinematography problem. Was when uh, Sinclair was blowing up at the very end. He's like coming toward the camera, and there's the big fireball behind him. It's like you wouldn't be able to get that shot with a real camera. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you just it's it it was the angle that was that was problematic more than anything else. Everywhere else, it's like, okay, we've got a camera like following the guy from the side or, or behind him or he's zipping past it. This thing of we're rocketing backward while the guy is falling toward this and exploding. Like, What's that camera mounted on? It's the guy that they kicked out of the, the blimp first without a parachute. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there were like six guys who got kicked through the windows. <laughs> <laughs> Just one of you make sure the film survives. <laughs> Okay, I well, the cameraman that... just went out, so we got six minutes before he hits the ground, before he <laughs> runs out of reels. <laughs> I think the only thing that really that really took me out of the moment was once it seemed like uh, the ADR was off for Sarah Connolly. Sarah Connolly. Wow. Are you Sarah wow. Connolly? No, I just. <laughs> I just called her by her character name from the labyrinth. Jeez. Ah, okay. That's a mess. Okay. Jennifer Connelly. 
who is a different person from her character of Sarah in The Labyrinth, who was surrounded by Muppets. <laughs> Muppets, the, Nazis, I mean, come on. Uh, you know what? There's a film challenge out there, like, if you were to remake any movie and keep one keep one actor and change the rest to Muppet, I'm going to call it, yeah, Jennifer Connelly, The Rocketeer. I, I want to see that movie and everything else is Muppets. <laughs> I think those initial scenes of him trying on the backpack and being out of control would be way better. <laughs> I hope I hope those Muppets are fire retardant, though, because this could be a problem. Instead of Timothy Dalton playing the role of Neville Sinclair will now be Gonzo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, this I must see. But other than Jennifer Connelly's ADR, I, I think there was just a, a mismatch in when they were talking about going to the movies that... Things seem just a little bit off, and you know that's the only that's the only real glitch that took me out of it. Hmm. So, shall we move on to talking about the characters a bit? I think we should. I guess let's start off with uh, Mr. Rocketeer himself. Yeah, I have it in the notes because I couldn't I couldn't think of it at the moment, so I just said uh, Rockets McWhat's his face. <laughs> the, the main character, uh, yeah, face. I. I had to watch it a second time to remember his name, too, which is Cliff Secord. Yeah, you know, as leading men go, did a great job as the square-jawed pilot hero type. What's he done since? <laughs> I did not IMDb him. It was, I usually IMDb somebody when I'm like, oh, I know that voice. I know that voice. If you don't want to be overly depressed, then don't. Yeah, I, no. I, I did. And he's been in a lot of stuff, none of which I have seen. Yeah. Uh, I think this was his big moment. It came, it went, and the rest of the world went on. Yeah. And he's I been mean, doing bit parts since then. He did. This is the thing, is that he, I don't think he did a bad job with the, with the role. No, he did a pretty good job. And he looked the part, he acted the part, as well could be expected. It wasn't between him and the jetpack. The star was the jetpack. Yeah, the trouble is that they wanted an everyman, somebody that, you know, it's a superhero thing, it's a, it's wish fulfillment, and so they wanted somebody that everybody could project themselves into, or at least that young men could project themselves into, and they, they got exactly that. I mean, he's he's forgettable because that was what he was intended to be, and that's been unfortunate for his career, probably. Mm-hmm. And it didn't help that as a protagonist... He wasn't really. Things happened to him, but he didn't do much to actually drive the plot himself. He was always reacting instead of doing something proactive. Yeah, we got to use this to make some money. I got to save my girl. I got to save my girl again. What about the Nazis? I got to say there's Nazis. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) And I think it's interesting is that I don't think that he he was the rocketeer because it wasn't about him as the Rocketeer. It was about the Rocket Pack. We were mm-hmm. we were following this as the driving item of of the narrative. I really feel like this film was the prequel to the Rocketeer. This was the the backstory. This well, was the origin the story, Rocketeer? right? Yeah. If there was a real protagonist in this film, I think it actually was Jenny, because she was the one who was doing things and acting and finding things out. Uh, unfortunately. Her every uh, advancement of the plot was undercut by somebody else dismissing her or, oh, suddenly she's captured again. 
One, two, like, I'm free. I'm getting into a taxi. You know, I just got out of there and everybody's running and screaming. I, I'm really concerned about this guy. Oh, wow. He does not have, no, he does not have that under control. No, that is not under control. I need, somebody needs to go in and help him. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. She goes in and then, you know, and then Mr. Sinclair brought chloroform to the equation. Okay, fine. All right. There we go. You, know, you think at some point between running back in, trying to hit a mountain of muscle over the head, to being drugged and waking up in a strange place, that she would have looked at herself and said, I need to rethink my life choices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, she she did get to that point. Like, there was, there, I mean, there was this thing where um, she's on the date, and then she's unconscious. Dude has obviously drugged you and taken you back to his, his very, very fancy home. And you can see the moment of, oh my gosh, things are. This is this is not okay. Like, no, this is this is not okay. To, um, no, I'll try on I'll try on your thingy. And my my daughter was watching with me, and she's like, "What is going on? Is Hollywood? A, when was this movie made? Is this just how brainless <laughs> the writers were?" And then when she smashes the guy over the head, she's like. Nope, I'm I'm back in this movie. Yeah. I am back in this movie. <laughs> I didn't remember that scene from when I watched it when I was younger. Maybe I just kind of took it for what it was. But today, oh, that, that scene had me crawling in uncomfortableness. Yeah, I have some notes here once we get to Sinclair. Uh, so. But we can, we can bring them out here. We can bring them out with Sinclair. Well, but yeah, that let's, scene. Let's wrap up uh, Cliff Secord first, and then we'll get to Sinclair. Oh, were we, we talking about Cliff? Well, we yeah. went from Cliff to to Sarah Con or to I just did it again to you. You wrote Sarah Connolly. I did. Oh my god! Uh, you let's. We went from Cliff to Jennifer Connolly to Timothy Dalton. So, in the interest of kind of staying on track, let's wrap up, Mister Secord. Well, the only other thing that I had to say was. Uh, he had that moment standing on top of the Griffith Observatory, which kudos to them for using the observatory. It's a cool place, and people should shoot there more often. Uh, he's standing in front of the American flag, and then he takes off and like, oh, that looks so patriotic. But that flag is probably on fire now. That's not the only thing that should be on fire. <laughs> yeah, look, we give we give a lot of things in this film a pass for not being on fire. I mean. You didn't raise the question any other time in the film, and I just want to enter into evidence exhibits A and B, namely Cliff's left butt cheek and his right. <laughs> you make an excellent point. Like, my yeah. daughter has actually said, what are his pants made of? His helmet's not the only thing that's bronzed. <laughs> well, you know, he's, he's, wearing... he's very used to being in airplanes that are already on fire, so maybe he just wears asbestos <laughs> pants as a matter of course. You beat me to be no. <laughs> I'm sure that won't cause any problems in the future. <laughs> so shall we head to probably many people's favorite or second favorite character in this movie? And that is Mr. Neville Sinclair. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Or, I... As I wrote, the answer to the question that everyone was asking, what if Errol Flynn was a Nazi spy? That's not a question in vain because there was actually an, an unauthorized autobiography that either insinuated or stated that Errol Flynn had ties to the Nazi party. Interesting. So that, Wait, not... did you say an unauthorized autobiography? Did I say unauthorized <laughs> autobiography? 
I meant I've, I've I wrote this, but I don't know if I agree with it. <laughs> I'll have to ask myself what I think. I, I, I want you to said, sue the man who wrote my autobiography. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I have said yeah. tongue in cheek several times the unauthorized autobiography, and I, you know, I've I've said it in the past for a gag, and I think it I think it just slipped out here. <laughs> Uh, how many ways can I derail this podcast? That's... <laughs> About as many times as Timothy Dalton chewed up the scenery in this movie. <laughs> okay, like, all right, Timothy Dalton. He is my favorite Bond. And I'm going to, like, I know that that is an unpopular choice. No, no, he was in one Bond movie, but he was solid. I thought he was, like, in two or three. Do you know what? It doesn't matter. He was solid no matter how many Bond films he wasn't in. Um, and... <laughs> Just to have him as this suave, melodramatic, mustache-twirly villain was just, I mean, it was it was over the top, but it was deliciously over the top. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Chuck in TV show? I have not. Neither have I. No. He does a terrific villain. It's a little bit of a spoiler, but he is a villain uh, in, uh, I think, the fourth season of Chuck and is just amazing. And you guys have watched uh, the Simon Pegg movie Hot Fuzz, right? Mm-hmm. No, actually. He plays a local shop owner, like the local grocery store owner, and he's just delicious is the only way I can characterize his performance. It's just wonderful. And see, it's funny because the instant he hit the screen, I knew that he was the villain. You know, and it, he didn't even <laughs> have to really say anything. He just kind of carried it, and it was just so... It was just so much, and I and I I loved it. What I found interesting was that the movie establishes Neville Sinclair as a villain right off the bat. Like the first scene we get from him at the beginning of the movie shows he's dealing with mobsters. He wants the stolen rocket pack, and so we get okay, wow, he's the bad guy. And usually in movies like this, you'll find that there will be a reveal later that he's a villain. And while we do get a reveal later in the movie, it's that he's not just a bad guy. He's like the ultimate bad guy. He's a Nazi bad guy. Yeah, that was the the thing behind the curtain was why he was doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. He didn't really make any sense. And everybody pointed that out. Or rather, Valentine pointed out, what does an actor want with a rocket pack anyway? Well, he did say that he does his own stunts. And he wanted to be a shooting star. No, no. <laughs> no we're not doing you know, We brought up his swashbuckliness and his comparison to, uh, to Errol Flynn. And the the first time we actually see him acting, he's doing a medieval-themed movie uh, with a giant staircase, which has is almost an exact look of the famous Errol Flynn movie, Robin Hood. And, and I found out that the similarities between the Neville Sinclair character and Errol Flynn aren't just, just the characters themselves. The movie that they made in The Rocketeer, I don't know what it was called, but... Very Robin Hood-esque. Looks just like the one that Errol Flynn was in. And the one it's based off of, the Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, was released in 1938, which is the year Ooh. this movie is set. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I also noticed that when they were when they were shooting that scene, I'm like, oh, dude, they took that right out of Robin Hood and Errol Flynn specifically. And then I realized, oh, wait, that is what they are trying yeah. to make yeah. You and I think that. Yeah, yeah, they know exactly what they're doing. What studio was that by? 
Errol Flynn. Oh, good Robin question. Hood. Warner. So yeah, they almost certainly had to dance around that because uh, it was a Disney picture mocking a Warner picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why it had just enough similarities to make it almost parody without it being plagiarism. Um, mm-hmm. Change the names of the characters, put a mask on uh, on Neville Sinclair, and there you go. While we're talking about his I'm totally not Robin Hood scenes, it's funny because we, we got to the end of the film and my youngest daughter, who was watching with me, said, what happened to the guy who got stabbed? And I was like, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why did we have a fellow actor that he just stabbed during the confusion on the set? I mean, because the idea was he stabbed him deliberately. I mean, right? I mean, that's that's the implication. Uh, and I, I'd like to believe that there was some sort of subplot here where this fellow actor was an FBI informant who got too close. And so Sinclair took advantage of the confusion during the accident and just went and ran him right through. See, I'm, I'm looking up information about Errol Flynn's Robin Hood to see if maybe a similar situation happened in the real movie that, that maybe they thought was, oh, that's interesting. Let's throw that in, uh, in the fake one, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm suddenly reminded of that uh, Middle-earth role-playing game in which you had to infiltrate a, uh, a theater troupe in the middle of a performance, and you murdered a guy on stage and well, the audience. Murder is such a <laughs> harsh word. I just closed his curtain sooner than he thought. <laughs> In my defense, it was too delicious a moment because the character wouldn't have expected it. The audience didn't expect it. And what's more important, our GM didn't expect, didn't expect it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Back onto the Rocketeer, though. I, the first time I watched it, I thought that guy had just been injured in the accident. Uh, but on the second viewing, I was like, well, no, why would he, he blame Sinclair so pointedly if uh, he'd just been hurt by a fall, by falling set? So, yeah, there, there was definitely something that was missing there, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, at least I have my head canon that there's this cat and mouse cloak and dagger game, which, you know, I... <laughs> I mean, maybe that would be a good thing to pick up in a comic book or, I mean, honestly, there are a lot of elements in this show that I think would have played well as a longer running television series. And it, Mm -hmm. I mean, it turns out that it, that it was a television series, not quite to the same uh, degree that some of, some of the other Disney properties took off. But um, was there a Rocketeer television series? uh, That's what my research has indicated, that there was a short running television series. IMDb, Hmm. don't fail me now. I, I mean, know there's honest, been one that was recent that's a cartoon. Yeah, I think that's it. And they're also kicking around the idea of a sequel reboot and all sorts of things. I remember it mostly from the merchandising when I was in Pizza Hut. But, <laughs> yeah, those drink lids were weird with that helmet. But anyway. Oh, there was a <laughs> Disney Junior cartoon series, The Rocketeer. Yeah, there that's you go. the one I'm thinking of. Huh. Yeah, and uh, what's his name? Uh, Billy Campbell was actually a voice for it too, I think. But yeah, I think that there were there was a deleted subplot that focused more on the the Hollywood set pieces. Um, because why do you put Howard Hughes in a Hollywood centric movie and never bring up his connection to the film industry? I'm sorry to say that before I saw the notes, I didn't know that he was a real guy. Oh my gosh, really? I know, right? <laughs> uh, Howard uh. Hughes is fascinating. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was looking him up afterwards, and I'm like, wow, okay. Yeah, because at this point in time, he's already, in 38, he's already produced three or four films. Um, I think he bought RKO in the 40s, so he's not like a big Hollywood mogul yet, but he's still, you know, intimately involved in in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, And having this opportunity of, okay, you've got, Hollywood film producer and also aviation engineer, and we're going to put him in this movie that has both. Why would you ignore that? Because that that would be such a great story to be telling. And he got this really tiny part in the movie. There's so much that you could be could be doing with that. And so I think originally the movie was a lot less about uh, Cliff and a lot more. There was a lot more of the Hollywood part of it in at least some draft. At least that's the sense that I get from it. We'll have to wait for the Rocketeer Extended Edition. Right. <laughs> uh, speaking of Howard Hughes, <laughs> and speaking of Howard Hughes, this is the first time I think I've seen Terry O'Quinn with hair. And a mustache. Oh, wait, does he have but a mustache in this? He almost always has a mustache. That's true. Uh, although the Howard Hughes at that time wouldn't have had a mustache because he grew that to cover up a scar after he was in a horrible plane crash. Oh, no way. And... <laughs> There's more to that, too, because while he was uh, recovering from that plane crash, he found the hospital so uh, uncomfortable that he invented a new one. (laughs) Whoa. And that is now the basis for the hospital beds that they use now. (laughs) So Howard Hughes is just the 1930s, 40s Elon Musk. Absolutely, yeah. So I guess we know know what's going to happen to Elon now. (laughs) And that thing with the glider that Cliff uh, rides out of his, his factory. Oh, the Spruce Goose. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the, the reference to that. What do you know? It can fly. So for uh, those who aren't aware, uh, Howard Hughes was contracted to build a heavy-lifting flying boat for the War Department to be used in World War II. The plane was never finished. Well, it was finished, but it wasn't finished in time for use by the, uh, the Air Force. And it only flew once. Uh, Hughes himself flew it for about a mile, um, and then it was mothballed and put in a museum. And there was lots of doubters, people saying that this thing would never fly. It was made out of wood, and it was too big. It couldn't fly. It had the longest wingspan of any craft in the world that actually ha- actually had flown, except for the uh, that double-hulled monstrosity they launched last year, the Straddle launch. So his comment, well, it actually will fly, was not about the rocket pack, but about the Hercules. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's funny because they put in a lot of little actual historical, I guess, tips of the hat in there. I mean, the the mobsters helping the federal government against the Nazis, that is, according to what I've been reading, an, an actual real thing. Um, it's funny. I don't quite really understand how these connections got made, but the Italian mob was not a fan of Mussolini. I, who knew? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, the there were some Jewish individuals in organized crime, and they were more than happy to tip off the feds against the Nazis. So, yeah, that was a real thing when you had, you know, the, I mean, it didn't happen like that, where you have the mobsters <laughs> and the feds kind of look at each other and like, eh, yeah, let's get these guys. Um, and it might be because there's no time in history that I've actually seen when Nazis literally came out of the woods in force. I mean, I don't know. I'm not. If it happened after 1670 and it didn't involve a long, straight, narrow piece of steel, I, you know, I lose track. But, you know, 
but the Beeman's gum was apparently a real thing. Uh, the BG Racer, also a real thing. Have either of you two ever had Beeman's gum? No, but it, it used to have pepsid in it, so like it's kind of like an antacid. So I can't imagine this thing tasting very good. Anytime we go to the restaurant, the Cracker Barrel, we see oh my gosh. they always have a, a big candy section. They also have like old timey candy. And I think I've seen on occasion Beeman's gum there, and I see it, and I remember it, but I've never been led to pick up a pack, pay money for some. But having seen it in this movie and how instrumental it was in several scenes, I might try it out, mm-hmm. unless it's horrible, and an then air- I might not. You, uh, get on an airplane. Yeah. And they will not let you stick it on the tail of a plane. I've, I've tried. So you get like, arrested. <laughs> What's the point, then? Before we entirely move move along from Sinclair, I think it's worth talking about, you know, the scene, you know, the one that really didn't play well in, in 2020. Yeah. Right. Okay, I get it. You brought the the chloroform rag on a date because you knew this wasn't a date, that this was information extraction, and this is your plan B for taking a hostage. Yeah, but he had that ready really quick. <laughs> Does he, he had a perfect firefight in the restaurant before. Does he, does he just keep one handy in his pocket at all times, just in case? Which also brings some really disturbing implications. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that was in my notes. Is like, ooh, that's dark for Disney. But, I mean, it's... It, and, okay, fine. Let's Let's just go ahead and assume that it is for kidnappings only. Like, that's what that's for. <laughs> that doesn't make it better, actually. No, it really doesn't. But we talked for a moment about his well-stocked like the Shea closet, or are we just gonna let that go? We just maybe, let, maybe that just go. let that go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, they, they were there when he moved in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Sinclair's house. Oh gosh. This place, when I saw it at the beginning, I turned my head sideways. I'm like, this place looks really familiar. I don't think this is a set piece. On a on a studio lot, I think this is an actual house, and I say that because I think I've seen it used in other movies. Specifically, I think it's a house that was used in the second Predator movie and others as well. Interesting. You know, I one thing I gotta say is though in that in that scene again, we're gonna. I think we're more or less done with Sinclair, but having Jenny come in, like, okay. She's regotten control of the situation and just kind of looks at Sinclair's library. I almost wish she would have like whispered, he doesn't strike me as a big reader and then start trying to flip the books. <laughs> I mean, like, There's got to be a mental process to like, I'm in a library. There's got to be something secret behind it. But I mean, I could almost well, she, see those wheels turning. She saw him operate it. Oh, when she first she? woke up. Yeah. Oh, I missed that. Well, okay, well, then good on her. She was paying more attention coming off chloroform than I was. Um, <laughs> you know, our first uh, clue about Sinclair should have been when she pulled the book on the bookshelf. It was a copy of Mein Kampf. Ooh, really? Okay. No, it wasn't. Well, I'm just kidding. Oh, dang it. <laughs> ah. All right, so after just a few moments of goo-goo-foo, I was able to look up Neville Sinclair's house, and it's called the Ennis House. It has been used many times. It was in 1982's Blade Runner. It That's was why used... I recognized the patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, the exterior of it was used several times in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Karate Kid 3, Rush Hour, some Michael Jackson music videos. The interior 
wasn't used, but elements of it were copied on sound stages for Predator 2 and several episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. And, of course, it was used for The Rocketeer, uh, Twin Peaks, Westworld, Mulholland Drive. So movie and television makers have gotten some mileage out of this house. Yeah, those uh, that pattern on the bricks, uh, I actually recognized. Uh, it's a Frank Lloyd Wright house, and he'd used that same pattern on a, uh, a museum, uh, the Barnesdale Park Art Museum, I believe. Ah, okay. And I initially thought that's where it was, I, but the layout is, is wrong. And what did they do with all of the stuff that's in the museum? <laughs> they put it behind the bookshelf. <laughs> so do we want to move on to the real hero of this movie? And that is, of course, Jenny. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about Jenny for a little bit. Not that we haven't already, probably because she really, in many places, stole the show. I mean, she, <laughs> Jennifer Conley has... First of all, just the perfect look for this period. Yeah, a classic like, golden age of cinema look. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they pulled a little bit of that in some of her scenes for Dark City, and she just pulls off the period look really well. And I, I enjoy her work in general, so it was a real treat to see her in this film. At the beginning of the movie, I thought she was a little too monotone, a little too breathy, but then I realized sometimes that's just how actresses were at that day and age. That is the period. Mm-hmm. At, at first in this film, when she first was coming out, I was like, oh, that, that is a little flat for the performance. But I, I think that you're right that this is probably direction rather than her as an actress. Because we, of course, see what's happening later in the film as this plot progresses. And she, she moves out of kind of that, that breathy place. Well, they wanted to establish that as part of her character, I guess, at the very beginning that she is the aspiring Hollywood starlet. I thought that it wouldn't be real hard to, to retool the script to make uh, Jenny the protagonist. Cliff being more in the background, the, the mysterious character, the rocketeer, being somebody who pops in and, and saves the day occasionally, and with the audience having no idea it was Cliff, I think it would make a nice like amateur detective noir slash superhero hybrid movie. I think that would be a really interesting movie to watch. I would watch uh, that film. So would I. I would like to oh, see that yeah. as a 10-episode series. Oh, that would be cool, too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do it even in seven. Given, you could do a lot. Yeah, but given the conservative structure of this movie and the fact that it wasn't uh, 1991 and it was a, uh, a superhero film, that would never have been greenlit. No. <laughs> no. What's funny is that when uh, when my family was watching this show with me, when you saw her first of all, duping Sinclair and sneaking about his house and starting to do her own detective work. My family all said that same thing. It's like, oh, now this is this is a show that I want to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she certainly seemed a lot more on the ball than anybody else in the movie, except Howard Hughes himself and Peavy and maybe Lothar. Yeah, I think she definitely needs to work for the FBI. <laughs> can, can we let this happen? Speaking of Peavy... Just for a moment, it was really enjoyable seeing him on the screen because, as I mentioned earlier, I've been rewatching episodes of MASH. The actor who played Peavy, Alan Arkin, played a character in MASH called uh, Dr. Sidney Freeman, who was a psychologist who would show up in various times to help a character through some problem, right. uh, depression, fear, worry, doubt something psychological that they were having a problem with. And every episode he showed up, 
he was a joy to watch. He has been in some of my favorite episodes. And whenever he would walk into the swamp, I knew, oh, this is going to be a good one. He was such an enjoyable character. And it was also a pleasure to see him as Cliff's buddy, his, his mentor, so to speak, and the guy who can fix anything. And he has such a, a natural uh, affect. I, I really believed his character. He just he was a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was effortless in this role. Mm-hmm. Well, was there anything else that we wanted to talk about the Rocketeer? Only one quick question, if you guys could help me out with this. I'm not terribly familiar with 1938 history. Were there any sightings of a, of a large airship passing over the entirety of the United States with a great big old swastika on its butt? Or was that just... <laughs> I mean, I feel like people would have noticed that. 1938? Well, they just turned it to the other side where there wasn't a yeah. swastika on the other side. Oh, uh, yeah. all right, all right. 1938, okay. no. No, there wasn't. Actually, okay, just for, 1937, just however, a completely different story. <laughs> yeah, I think that does it for my concluding unscientific postscript. <laughs> well, gentlemen, if that will wrap up the Rocketeer and this episode's film club, I think it is time to turn ourselves to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, what do you have for us this time? Uh, this, this plan actually takes a, a little bit of a different twist because Brian had asked me a question a while back, which is if I if I am a socially responsible person and uh, I uh, want to continue that uh, that environmentally conscious aspect of my personality, once I have been turned to the undead, what should I do? And really, I think that my advice is once you've turned, uh, you don't really have to let that component go. You just have to remember that you recycle and sort. Once you're done eating the person with all of the constructive and reconstructive and cosmetic surgeries, make sure once you're done eating to take the plastic bits and sort that from <laughs> from the titanium and other metal bits. Once we keep those in separate piles, when society rebuilds, we'll be able to recycle <laughs> You know, the sad part is if there is actually a zombie apocalypse, there would be groups who would actively petitioning for this very thing. Like, we're <laughs> going to need all of those titanium screws, guys. We need, to, we need to really sort those out. No, don't throw that around with the meat. The meat's going to... Dr- uh, never mind. <laughs> I could picture a black market erupting for this. So how much for a secondhand hip replacement? I don't know. We haven't got one. Hold on. Uh, that one over there is uh, limping. Give me two seconds. Uh, bam, bam, bam. That is a very black market. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I think it's going to wrap it up for us this episode. Thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And, Mike, what's our Twitter handle? We are Arms Geek on Twitter. And also, however you check us out, whether it's on Podbean, through iTunes, or through Google, leave us some likes, leave us a review, let us know what you're thinking. Helps us improve the show and, and all that. And so finally, <laughs> from Brian, Mike, and James, we want to say, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even 
subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.